Court Avenue was extremely popular back then. But like going into a building, being able to like feel how much life had been lived in there before. I find that's what's interesting about architecture is when architecture reflects the time that it was built in and also reflects like a specific set of values. So it was a, a big, huge, gracious apartment. and Great and, for um, parties. Yeah. And, and it was really a lot of the experiences that happened here that built a friendship that's lasted really a lifetime. Welcome to the Pasadena Project, Episode 4, The Men in Apartment 4C. One of the people in C Block had a piano in their suite, and I always like wonder about that process of how they got their piano in their suite and how like awful that experience must have been just imagining like the stairs taking a couch in and out of this place is a nightmare at the best of times this is sarah craker she lived in the pasadena around 2010. in the summertime like hearing somebody practice piano is always super like nice. I feel like it was fairly accomplished music, so uh, not like a child practicing, but somebody who knows how to play. The person Sarah heard playing piano in the C block of the Pasadena was likely John Clark. He lived in apartment 4C with his partner, Sandy Gordon. He was very prideful in his accomplishments on the keyboard. He would play the grand piano and the whole complex would be full of music. This is a different John, John Schroeder. He's lived in the Pasadena for about 15 years and he was good friends with John Clark. He told me many times that he regrets stopping when he did to show me that he could play by, uh, by plucking out a little ditty with his, his arthritic fingers would have been, it just wouldn't have matched the man. I, on the other hand, uh, uh, regaled him with uh, many hours of my piano playing. <laughs> How's that one, Johnny? I'd yell out, lovely, Johnny, he would say, lovely. <laughs> John Clark and Sandy Gordon moved into the Pasadena around 1962 and they were by far the building's longest tenants, living in apartment 4C for more than half a century, until their deaths in 2011 for Sandy and in 2014 for John. John Clark's obituary describes his passion for the piano and for classical music, saying he spent his spare time learning the entire well-tempered clavier by J.S. Bach and all 550 sonatas by Domenico Scarlatti. 
I'm sure he, in his head, he was meant, meant to say, that's nothing, stop it. But he would say, that's lovely. Or he would yell out, Johnny, why don't you get yourself a drinky poo, he would say to me. So just to get me to stop and come and sit with him. When I learned about John and Sandy, I was instantly intrigued. I was intrigued both because they had lived in the Pasadena for so long, watching as the neighborhood and the building went through so many changes, and also because they were a gay couple who had moved into the building at a time when it would have been rare for a gay couple to live openly together. It was 1962, seven years before the Stonewall riots and seven years before homosexuality was partially decriminalized in Canada, and 25 years before Winnipeg's first Pride Parade. I wanted to learn more about them, and because both of them died before I started working on this project, the other John, John Schroeder, seemed like one of my best opportunities to get a glimpse into the lives of the men in apartment 4C. I first met John last summer, on the patio at Bar Italia, just around the corner from the Pasadena. But when we finally arranged to meet for an interview, the world had been shut down by COVID-19. So we arranged a Skype call, and John told me about the other John from across the computer screen. When my wife and I, Marnie and I, were living in 9C, we would see them in the hallway constantly going into their door, and they were just lovely. They were, they were always um, very gracious and, and uh, forthcoming with the, the activities of the day, usually involving you know, what they were going to eat and drink and uh, who they were going to see. They, they were very big socializers. They really started to look at us as as friends of theirs. Uh, one time, John had fallen in the parking lot. They were off to 529 for some prime rubber or what have you. And he had fallen and Marnie was there and she called 911 and she had his head in her lap and she waited there with him and, and uh, anyway, ingratiated herself to them. And so, you know, we were kind of on the hit list like, of the friendliness and the, uh, the salutations. Sandy, he was he was quite uh, quite a lot fitter than John was, and he would. I remember seeing him bound up the stairs at uh, how old was he when he passed? Seventy nine. He would swim regularly, and uh, it was all a big shock when when I came home from work and and Marnie had told me she goes yeah. Sandy passed away. She said, well, you should, you should go talk to, to Johnny. She said she had already been down there, and she said, I think he would really enjoy you going down. And so that's exactly what I did. I knocked on his door, which I had never knocked on A4 prior to that. And John came up. Who is it? Oh, hey, John, it's John from 9C. Says, oh, come in, and led me right into the living room, and and I sat down on the couch, was which was I didn't know at the time was going to become my desk, my school desk, my for my great education for this man that just opened up my world um, over the next well, quite a long time. I, I can't remember exactly how long that John and I were together like that, but I sat down. And he just started speaking to me, and he was devastated, heartbroken, and and 
he he never said Sandy. It was always my Sandy. He would say my Sandy, and and he would cry, and we would just sit there. I told him I was going to start uh, looking in on him every day. Found out what he needed. He needed uh, a newspaper every day. I bring him the Free Press, and uh, and then I would go to work. And then uh, every day I would come and have dinner with him, and we'd sit prior to dinner and, and talk about the day and have uh, uh, some J and B scotch. And he would usually cook for me. He was a wonderful cook. Always a stickler for the recipes. Says you have to follow the recipes, Johnny. Have to follow the recipes. That's the secret to cooking. I don't like following the recipes, John. Well, we were we were uh, a strange pair of friends. John Clark and Sandy Gordon were both academics. Everyone I've spoken to about them have described how their entire apartment was filled with books. So many that they had to have shelves built into the walls that remain in apartment 4C to this day. They were both French professors at the University of Manitoba, experts in 16th and 17th century French literature. They were extremely dedicated to their work and to the French language, visiting Paris nearly every year where they rented an apartment in Montmartre. In the 1970s, John also regularly wrote columns in the free press, where he would review new recordings of classical piano music. His reviews show a flair for the dramatic, combined with a biting wit. In February 1973, he wrote, On the one occasion that I was able to attend a cell concert in which he devoted his whole program to Mozart, I remember being bedazzled, bewildered, and not particularly beguiled. I therefore did not come to this recording of these four Mozart symphonies with overwhelmingly favorable prejudices. The following week, he wrote that, There is no doubt about it, Columbia is producing the worst-sounding piano recordings of any company struggling to stay alive with classical music these days. So it was a surprise to me that John Clark and John Schroeder became such close friends. There were about 40 years separating the two of them, and John Schroeder is covered in tattoos and spent his 30s playing in rock bands. We really cared for each other. I really, I really cared for him. He was such a thoughtful individual. I, don't, I, I think we were just at, at that time in our lives when we needed, we needed someone to just sit and talk to and we it was kind of a perfect timing situation and and obviously me working in the neighborhood and him being in the house for the majority of the time I was I could always be here very quickly and and uh, help him out I didn't mind that at all He would tell me stories from Paris. He would tell me stories about uh, Oxford. I said, gay Paris, eh, Johnny? He says, oh, yes, Johnny, very gay. 
I think they met at La Maison Canadienne, which houses students. So they met when they were students in Paris. And uh, they hit it off right away. And from what John told me, uh, they were a couple from the start. This is Alan McDonnell. He was good friends with both John and Sandy, and was a colleague of theirs in the University of Manitoba's French department. Most people in the department knew that the two were a couple, but Alan said that it wasn't exactly talked about. I mean, uh, there were negative, uh, well, I would say negative people who didn't like that. And they didn't even like to think about it. And that's, in a sense, how um, they got along through the uh, 60s, 70s, because... Uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, some people knew, and other people preferred not to know. Uh, you know, the other thing I, I, I stressed when we were talking before is uh, there were two honest, uh, um, you know, honest men in the 17th century sense who were cultivated and uh, uh, open-minded. And uh, I think everybody appreciated that about them. Well, maybe not everybody, but uh, I certainly did. Alan first met John and Sandy when he was a student of theirs. He remembers the first time he visited them in the Pasadena. It was at one of the dinners that the couple were famous for hosting for new students and faculty. It was... Um, uh, sort of sweaty. I mean, it wasn't anything. It was very intimate. It was about 10 people and a mix of uh, new people in the department. There was a new prof, I remember. Uh, uh, then there was me. I, I was a student. Uh, delicious meal and nice conversation. And sort of, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say a revelation for me, but kind of the first time I'd been to a nice gathering like that. At some point during the more than 50 years that the couple lived in the Pasadena, John and Sandy also rented out the apartment across the fire escape from 4C, in the B block of the building. There they had a guest room and kept a smaller practice keyboard for John but they also needed the space for all the things they acquired over the years. Not just the books, but the art and the records and the souvenirs they brought home from their travels. Of course, John and Sandy's apartment, uh, it, it sort of grew over time, uh, but it was a creation. The uh, I mean, we talked about this before, the Persian carpet um, that they brought back from New York, the, uh, the sofa in the living room that they got from uh, a sale, and the, the curtains, which I always admired, dulled it, dark green. And just uh, with the carpet, it was just right.
bit by bit they created uh, a home. Uh, so by the end of the around um, 80, 81, now I'm not saying it was a cocoon, but um, it was a very nice uh, sort of refuge from the rigors of um, academic life, which can be, you know, there isn't, there isn't much heavy lifting, but there's a lot of stress, and uh, it was a refuge. Despite the fact that John and Sandy could have easily afforded to move to a different, bigger apartment, or to buy a house, the two stayed in the Pasadena, as so many others in the area moved to the suburbs, and the Cordon Avenue area became known as Winnipeg's Little Italy. As the Pasadena changed hands, and the building's exterior was repainted, and as buildings around them were torn down and replaced by newer, shinier condos. It seemed like um, the kind of building where people built a life. I'm, I'm somebody who's lived in many apartments like that. The Moxham, the, <laughs> um, the Roslyn, lots of them. Uh, and this was one of the best, where the floors didn't creak so much, where the, um, the radiators didn't make so much noise. Uh, where the heat was steady, and they had a good run of uh, good uh, apartment superintendents. Bit by bit, they just got used to it, and they created their their little nest. It wasn't so little after if you get to two apartments. Uh, and really, where else would they go? They didn't want a house. Uh, and uh, I don't really see what other apartment would have been better for them. But more than just a home for John and Sandy, in some ways, their apartment seemed to represent their status as a couple. The two were never married, even after they would have been legally able to. And even though they were together for longer than most marriages, the thing that remained a constant for the two of them, right until the end, was the Pasadena. Oh, geez, I don't know how to put it. Uh, light history, saga story of... You know, two people who uh, meet and, uh, I mean, of course, this is about the apartment, too, and, uh, and create a home for themselves and create a friends, circles of friends. The friends were very important to them because uh, it sort of uh, reinforced their image as a couple. A few years after Sandy died, John Clark took one last trip to Paris. He wanted to visit all the places they'd visited together. Their favorite restaurants, eat his favorite creme brulee, or drink his favorite martini, one last time. But on the very first day of the trip, John fell and injured his leg. He never really bounced back from that injury and from that experience. I think it really took a lot out of him that he couldn't have that one last experience of Paris the way he wanted it to say mm -hmm. goodbye properly. And I really felt badly for that. I, w I started helping him an awful lot more around the house. I would undress him and put, tuck him in. And, you know, I'd, it was much more of a hands-on involved kind of uh, caregiving that I was giving at the end. We would continue on, you know, with our dinners and our whiskey and our comedies. And uh, 
he, he was just unable to really move around on his own at all at that point. And I was really glad I could be there for him at the, at the end. So he, he was able to stay in his house for as long as he possibly could. And then there's mm -hmm. this one time where I was helping him up to use the washroom and um, he just slid right onto the floor and I, I, I put him down gently. Uh, he was in pain. I said, Johnny, I have to call an ambulance. And at first they had him in a really nice new room and then they had transferred him to this really dingy part of the hospital. But it was just sad to, to come see him again in this much dingier, smaller room. It was like putting him in a closet. I thought, no, this man doesn't, he's not, uh, he's gonna die in a closet. Uh, because Sandy had died in, in the apartment, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that was part of John that like wanted to ta die in the apartment? Do you think that's what Absolutely. he wanted? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. Yeah. That's what he wanted to do. I really loved that, man. I was very fortunate to to know John. Sometimes I, I just, uh, I'm still in awe of that time that we had together. And uh, I hope that everyone gets that kind of experience at some point in their life. He he. He dramatically opened up my world, my thoughts, my desire to play better piano. That was episode four of the Pasadena Project. Thank you for listening. The theme music for this series is by Bougie Belgique. And on this episode, you also heard John Lewis Grant and Kevin McLeod performing Bach, John Sankey performing Scarlatti, Circus Marcus performing Beethoven, and the Advent Chamber Orchestra performing Mozart. You can find a link to all the music in the show notes. You can also find a link to our website, www.pasadenaproject.com where you can find more information about the podcast. On the next episode, we'll talk about the shift towards the Pasadena becoming a more affordable building in the 1970s and 80s, and the birth of Little Italy on Corden Avenue. The Pasadena Project is supported by the Winnipeg Architecture Foundation, with funding from Winnipeg Planning, Property and Development, Manitoba Sport, Culture and Heritage, and the Winnipeg Arts Council. The Pasadena Project is produced on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. <laughs>